0: everybody, and welcome to the 10th episode of our limited series, Audio Judo Does Jazz. I'm Kyle from the podcast Audio Judo, and I'm here to introduce this episode. But first, I want to mention that both Audio Judo and Audio Judo Does Jazz are proud members of the Pantheon Podcast Network. If you're interested in any genre of music, music history, or just want to discover great new music, Pantheon has got at least one podcast that you'll love. Visit PantheonPodcasts.com to see the entire catalog. On this definitely real and not at all bootlegged episode of Audio Judo Does Jazz, Chris circles back around to talk about Charles Mingus again, specifically what he was up to in and around 1964. Why, you might ask? Here's Chris with the answer.
1: People are places, and places are times. Memories are the product of people and places in times. When I think of Charles Mingus' music at this period of his career, I think of the friends he brought with him to Europe in April 1964 and the magic they created in essentially a month of their lives. I think of all the great friends I've made in my life and the magic we created, both temporary and everlasting. There's a good dozen other versions of me at different ages and stages still roaming this earth, Stuffed with varying levels of hope and optimism and hang-ups and despair. Some of my variants evolved, while others are stuck in a time and place, having never learned the lessons I should have by now. I recognize each as products of different friendships and times in my life. I'm sure all of you have just as many, if not more. So you might be asking yourself, why? Why do another episode on Charles Mingus? With so many other worthy musicians, with so many other time periods and styles of music I haven't addressed, with so much material I'm not covering, then why? Why Mingus? Why 1964? Why this material? Why these guys in this particular short-lived band? I think in this first season of episodes, the musicians, their stories, their music, and what they represent have chosen me as much as I have chosen them. This is a story that demands to be told. And am I going to be the guy to tell Charles Mingus that his story doesn't require another chapter? not me. The man has threatened violence to musicians on the stage while they're playing for less than that. As I stated in the last episode with Eric Dolphy, think of this as a trilogy, or at least three episodes that are linked into a larger arc. This is part two, when things can get pretty dark. First, a quick reminder as to who we're dealing with in Charles Mingus. Mingus was a composer, a bassist, a band leader, and a genius. His music had just the right elements. The jubilance of church music, the grit of the blues, the sophistication of Duke Ellington's Big band compositions, and the daring and freedom of Charlie Parker. He paid his dues while playing with everyone from Louis Armstrong to Lionel Hampton to Ellington to Parker. In the mid to late 1950s, he released one barrier-breaking album after another, culminating with the four outstanding albums he recorded in 1959, which we covered in episode four. As we learned in the Ornette Coleman episode, he took up the challenge of the avant-garde by forming his own pianoless quartet and recorded several fine albums in 1960. This includes the incredible Mingus and Antibes album I mentioned in the Eric Dolphy episode. In 1961, he would return to the jazz workshop with another iconoclastic musician in his band, Rasan Roland Kirk, but we'll cover that in Kirk's episode later on in the season. That brings us to 1962. In less than two years, he would experience the greatest artistic failure of his career, create perhaps his greatest artistic triumph, assemble his finest band, and then see all the momentum his career had built up to that moment come to an end. That is what we'll explore in this episode of Audio Judo Does Jazz. Song So Long Eric, a composition he wrote prior to his tour of Europe in 1964. It's one of the catchiest songs of the repertoire, and let that be your first taste of what you're getting into with the music of this episode. Have you ever had any big projects in your life? For much of my artistic life, I've been more of an ideas man than a man of action. I have a nagging lack of execution in any of my projects. That is to say, before this podcast, I've accomplished next to nothing artistically in my life. I have four entire books of letters planned for my daughters. I had a novel in mind, or rather, five, that would have gone a long way in painting over the failures of my 20s. They're still unwritten. I'm sure anyone who is listening to this can surely understand having great ambitions for a project only to fall short. Mingus had been afforded the opportunity to record in New York's Town Hall in 1962. He originally conceived the night of October 12, 1962 as a live workshop, an open rehearsal for an ambitious recording with a large orchestra. He had loads of new music he had recently written, and kept writing more music during rehearsals. In three rehearsals, not one of the songs had been played all the way through. The recording date, now billed by the promoters as a concert, much to Mingus's chagrin, had been moved up five weeks. I'm sure the pressure of it all got to Mingus at his apartment during rehearsals. He punched trombonist Jimmy Nepper, breaking one of his teeth, ruining his sound for a couple of years. Nepper filed assault charges. On the night of the show at New York City's town hall, two men still copied the music to be played while musicians had already started playing. Music started and stopped. Musicians looked at each other in confusion. Mingus yelled throughout the night and sometimes would just disappear. According to a review written by Bill Koss for Downbeat Magazine, Mingus grabbed a microphone, unamplified, and shouted at the audience, Get your money back. I couldn't stop you from coming here. The press agents lied to you. You've been taken advantage of. Go out now and get your money back. I don't want you to think I've done this to you. It was supposed to be a recording session, but Mr. George Wayne who is a fine promoter, changed it into a concert. So get your money back. The company has lots of money. It would take years to rehearse this music. The album released from that evening in 1962 and billed as Town Hall Concert on the United Arts label, later as Complete Town Hall Concert on Blue Note, kind of sucks. Maybe other people don't think it sucks, but I cannot in good conscience recommend it to you. 27 years later, in 1989, they released a new recording with some of the original players and a host of all stars, and they called it Epitaph for Mingus' original conception of the piece. It's a two hour affair. Now, I love Mingus' music, but the last time I heard this back in the 1990s, I didn't like it at all. Perhaps because it was two hours long, perhaps because Mingus himself isn't playing on it, maybe I just didn't have the patience for it. At the moment, I'm listening to it while I type this, and it's not as bad as I once thought. So let me temper my original views on it. In the 1990s, a younger version of myself would have said, There are a good 25 to 30 other albums by Mingus I would rather recommend to you than either a 1962 Town Hall show or the eventually released Epitaph. Maybe by the end of this episode, I'll have a different opinion. According to Yoda, the greatest teacher failure is. So what does Charles Mingus do? He assembles another band, heads right back to his jazz workshop, enlists the help of Bob Hammer to help arrange and orchestrate, and on January 20th, 1963, only two months after the biggest professional failure of his career, he records what is often labeled his greatest masterpiece, The Black Saint and the Sinner Lady. As I mentioned in episode four, there are two albums that people recommend to you from Charles Mingus, Mingus Ah Ah-Um and The Black Saint and the Sinner Lady. Undoubtedly, these are masterpieces, two of the greatest jazz albums ever recorded. Nobody refutes that. However, this episode is in large part a response to the generally held belief that these are the two that you should start off with. That if you could only choose two, then these would be them. That assertion is false, or rather, not necessarily true. His next recording, also on the Impulse label, is simply called Mingus 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 Mingus. It's effectively a greatest hits record. Older compositions recorded with the larger band, the way it was intended to sound, according to the liner notes. Thus a track like Haitian Fight Song is given the new title, 2BS. Goodbye Pork Pie Hat becomes theme to Lester Young. E's Flat Oz Flat 2 becomes Hora the Cubitus. Better get it in your soul, well only as the letter H and loses an ER sound and becomes better get hit in your soul, and so on. I prefer some of these versions to earlier versions, if only because Eric Dolphy plays on most of them and Charlie Mariano, a revelation on the Black Saint album, plays sax on two of the tracks. Was 2BS, an updated, trimmed down, and an even more incredible version of the Charles Mingus composition, Haitian Fight Song. It had originally been released on an album called The Clown in 1957. You may have heard this song a few years ago in some car commercial. It's also, I believe, the ringtone for the main character, Joe Gardner, in the movie Soul that came out last year. I may be a bit biased, but I highly recommend that movie as well. Several years ago, Not yet a year on the job and strapped for vacation days, I took a road trip down to Kentucky by myself. My wife had already left with the girls a few days prior to enjoy the charms of Rough River with her parents. With the car all to myself, I decided to bring all of my Mingus albums from the 1964 tour for the trip. I'd recently purchased the Cornell 1964 live album, but had not yet listened to it. This was a warm-up date neither I, nor many Mingus fans, had been aware of until its release. The other albums included Town Hall Concert from 1964, my friends. Let me emphasize that. April 4, 1964. Absolutely not the disaster from 1962. This album has only two tracks. So Long Eric at 17 minutes long and Praying with Eric at 27 minutes long. It's the first album I ever purchased from this tour, the one I listened to the most, and the one I highly recommend everyone should get if they should find this episode interesting. If you're going to dip your toes into the water, start here. Mingus in Europe Volume 1 and Volume 2 from their April 26th concert in Wuppertal, Germany, Revenge from April 17th in Paris, and a couple of not-so-legitimate releases one from Copenhagen from April 14th, and another from Amsterdam on April 10th. Now, this is a touchy subject for Sue Mingus, and I want to apologize to her for having come across a couple of these releases. She relates a story in the liner notes in Revenge that the first time she had been caught stealing records in Paris was the autumn of 1991. All of them were Mingus albums, all of them from illegitimate sources. She stuck to her guns, and they eventually had to let her go, realizing that they had no rights to sell them in the first place. The revenge in the title refers to revenge upon all the bootleggers that have made money off of Mingus's music. The fact is, this tour had been heavily recorded. Everyone on the stage knew it, and there had been little they could do about it. I just wish all the recordings could be properly released so the whole world could enjoy them and the money could go to the artists. On the trip down, I compared and contrasted this album, that album, made several mental notes, and jotted down all my ideas when I stopped for gas or got something to eat. I thought I'd make a big splash on the Jazz Reddit with my findings, having thoroughly examined all the releases. I have since lost all of those notes. I never did make a splash on the Jazz Reddit. What I can tell you is that I recommend each of these albums equally. None of them are any greater than any of the others. I merely recommend Town Hall Concert first as it's just the two tracks and the only one of the albums that's a single disc. Fortunately for all of us, Sue Mingus released the Live at Bremen 1964 and 1975 album last year. Four discs and four hours of live music from two different eras of Mingus's career. The 1964 show is from April 16th a day prior to The Revenge Show in Paris. is just a taste of Take the A Train, the Duke Ellington song that Mingus recorded on March 18th at a warm-up show for the band. Mingus is only in the middle of his bass solo here. How can you go wrong with bass playing like that? I also love the sound of Danny Richmond's drums in that auditorium. It's one of only two times that this band performed the song and could be found on the Cornell 1964 album. I think this performance is one of the main reasons to pick up that record, is they absolutely knocked the song out of the park so who are the individuals in the band first and foremost obviously is charles mingus the leader bassist composer firebrand genius joining him are five musicians in the rhythm section jackie byard is on piano the teacher mingus's music requires a piano player who is flexible who can play any of a number of different styles who can bring the church to the stage who can belt out the blues when needed who is well versed in both the schools of Ellington and Parker he also has the ability to conjure up the ghosts of Art Tatum and Fats Waller on the piano Bayard is the glue that holds the band together providing leads and accompaniment at just the right intervals Danny Richmond is again playing the drums he is Mingus's right hand man the other half of Mingus's brain As it's so large it requires two bodies to carry out all of its functions on stage. Their rhythms are so tight. It's hard to fathom how much they worked out ahead of time and how much is created on the spot. I'm sure the sheer volume of how long they played together on stage had something to do with it. I'm sure they use triggers to let the other know what's about to happen, but it all feels magical to me. His drums command, they urge, they boom, and they provided a foundation upon which to build everything else in the songs. Johnny Coles plays trumpet. To me, Johnny Coles represents a lost opportunity. I think I know why Mingus brought him into the band and his Little Johnny C album. He sounds to me a little like Miles Davis. It's an album I highly recommend, but he doesn't much sound like himself on this tour. His solo is often the first solo to be played in the songs, and I'm usually underwhelmed by it. I don't know if he's out of place if Mingus' music is not the right material for him to play, or if it's because he's completely outshined by the two other horn players on the stage. It's also a lost opportunity because he actually collapsed on stage in Paris. After performing So Long Eric, he started to feel a pain in his sides. He walked across the stage behind a curtain and fell down 22 steps. He had been taken first to a French hospital who wouldn't take him because he didn't speak French and then to an American clinic where he eventually woke up three days later. Apparently, he had a perforated gastric ulcer. The operating doctor said that if he'd come in five minutes later, he would have died. So Coles had been lost for the rest of the tour. In his honor, they set his trumpet on top of what would have been his chair each night. However, I think his absence allowed something else, and I would argue something greater to take place. Eric Dolphy, of course, is the star. He's the guy who has the most distinctive voice in the band. On several of the albums released, the title remarks that the album is by Charles Mingus with Eric Dolphy. He is seen as a musician on par as the leader, or whose mere presence should tip off to the listener that perhaps they might want to pick this up. He's not merely a sideman, but a collaborator elevated from the others in the band. On that road trip down to Kentucky, one of my ulterior motives for listening to all those albums have been to find a solo on par with his solo on Wednesday Night Prayer Meeting, which I discussed in the last episode. I just remembered hearing all sorts of great sax solos when I heard those songs back in college. Well, the reason I heard so many great sax solos is due to Clifford Jordan, who plays tenor sax. He is the secret weapon. He's probably the key as to why all these records sound so great to me. While Eric Dolphy's playing is consistent across all three of his instruments, Jordan's sax solos are all surprisingly fantastic. He doesn't have a distinctive voice per se. He just sounds perfect. He rises to the occasion and should be reason enough for looking into the music of this tour. So, the material. Before I get into the actual songs, there are two things you've got to know. One, much of the material is repeated show after show. With some artists, they don't stray too much from the original giving the audience exactly what they want to hear. However, each new version of these songs is an entirely new creation. Each is lovable with its own charms and idiosyncrasies. The second thing you need to know is that many of these songs are long. 10 minutes long, 20 minutes long, up to 37 minutes long for Fables of Faubus by the end of the tour. For some, these might be reasons for not investigating this music. I remember myself looking at that 37-minute timestamp for Fables of Phobus on Mingus in Europe, Volume 1. Do I really need to hear a 37-minute version of this song? Isn't the 8-minute version on Mingus a Um, Fine, the way it is? 8 minutes? Manageable. 37 minutes? You gotta be kidding me. As stated in the movie Say Anything, it's about economics. It's about time and money and investment in each. Two things that are in short supply in our lives. To that I respond, well, what are you in this for? Does the music fill you up? Does it take you places? Does it fill your heart? Does it fill you up with ideas? Anyone can be forgiven for not wanting to listen to the 37-minute version of Fables of Faubus. It's a lot, I know, but who among you will feel rewarded for having done so? The show is often opened with a four to five minute piano solo played by Jackie Byard. On the records, this song is either entitled ATFW USA or ATFW YOU USA. I'm not entirely sure what the additional YOU refers to. Perhaps it's an initiation rite for the audience, a signal that they are now involved, or an invitation to take part. In the night's program. The AT refers to the great Art Tatum, a piano player I'll feature in a future episode. FW refers to Fats Waller, another one of the greatest jazz piano players from an earlier age. These references are signposts to help describe Bayard's style playing in the tune. It's just conjecture on my part, but these jazz references, as well as the USA referred to at the end of the title, is an introduction to two aspects of the shows. One, I believe Mingus' intent with these shows is to present to European audiences the history of jazz, or rather, the best jazz has to offer according to the mind of Charles Mingus. In the shows, he often, but not always, included a tribute to Charlie Parker called either Ow, or Dedicated to a Genius, or Parker These songs have been composed of an overall medley of songs Charlie Parker brought into jazz. Mingus also often performed a bass solo on the song Sophisticated Lady, one of Duke Ellington's songs. As mentioned before, he also played Take the A Train a couple of times. Taken collectively, I think Mingus thought of himself and his band as an ambassador of jazz to Europe. Two. Again, this is all conjecture, as there's precious little written about this tour online. I've looked. But I believe Mingus is also using this opportunity to come to Europe as an ambassador of civil rights. It's 1964. It's a year after Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech. His performance of the songs Meditations and Fables of Faubus make up nearly an hour of the two hour show. Orange is the color of her dress, then blue silk, sounds to me like both a blues and a ballad. It's the palate cleanser of the group of songs. Each version sounds largely the same to me. Of all the tunes from the tour, it has the simplest structure. I don't know if you'd call it a refrain or a reoccurring motif, but there's a three-note phrase the horns play that punctuate the end of a certain number of bars. While it does speed up as a bit of a counterpoint, it never gets crazy like some of the other songs. With the simple structure and that three-note phrase lodged in your ears, The song allows you to just enjoy whatever the soloist is playing without having to pay attention to anything else going on. Just because it's simple in comparison to everything else they performed, it doesn't mean that should be skipped. Prior to the tour, Eric Dolphy told Mingus he planned on staying in Europe after the shows were over. He wanted a new life for him and his fiancée Joyce, who currently resided in Paris. He wanted more work A musician of his caliber could work all over Europe in any number of jazz or classical settings. One hears different accounts of how well jazz musicians are treated when they're away from home. And I think that may have been a part of the equation as well. Mingus didn't want him to go. They had an ongoing argument as to why he should or shouldn't go. And Mingus wrote a song called So Long Eric that they performed on each step. As I mentioned earlier, I think it's the catchiest song of their whole repertoire. Every time I listen to the beginning of that song, I'm 21 again. Someone has brought in the Labatt's or Molson Ice beers. The cards are brought out in order to play Euchre or Canasta. Some guys are smoking. Some guys are laughing. Maybe Rick or Kevin are trying to pull off their pizza scam, telling whoever answered the phone that the manager said there were coupons for free pizzas or something like that. Oddly enough, that scam worked a lot more times than it didn't. Listen to Tom Waits or... Bob Dylan, or a Johnny Cash prison album soon enough. Or Scott, Chapman, Watson, Austin, Fontana, Gavin, and Willie, or some fraction of us there. No girls, not that they weren't allowed. We either didn't have as much luck as everyone else did in college, or we chose to spend our time together. I don't know that any of us looked too far into the future. I think Chapman might have been the only one to really plan for life after college. I'm sure at least a Part of us would have preferred the company of a woman, but we had each other. An interesting, brilliant, hilarious, crazy group of guys. Listening to this period of Mingus's music, and specifically So Long Eric, reminds me of that line in the Beatles song, You Never Give Me Your Money. Oh, that magic feeling, nowhere to go. If the live version of Wednesday Night Prayer Meeting is my favorite performance of all time, then all the different performances of meditations from this band come right behind it. It actually has several different names, depending on which record you have in front of you. Meditation on integration, meditation for integration, meditation on a pair of wire cutters, or praying with Eric. As Mingus explains at the opening of the track at Town Hall Concert. This next composition was written when uh, Eric Dolphy explained to me that there was something similar to the concentration camps once in Germany, now down south, where they separated the Picatus, the green from the red or something like that. And the only difference between the electric barbed wire is that they don't have gas chambers and hot stoves to cook us in yet. So I wrote a piece called Meditations as to how to get some wire cutters before someone else gets some guns to us. The audience claps, and a few people, I think, chuckle nervously at what Mingus has presented to them. Did he just say what I thought he said? This is dark subject matter. It's one of two key songs Mingus brought every night to confront the dark and complicated history of race and civil rights and slavery in America. While not every version of the song follows the structure to a T, there is a basic order to it. It's a suite of sorts. I'm not going to map the whole thing out for you, as it's a little different each time but it begins with the flute. The other horns provide a percussive backing, if that makes sense. Either a piano solo or a bass clarinet solo from Eric Dolphy begins, and other solos ensue. There's also an alarm-like section in there somewhere, but then there's this sublime section. I suppose it's one of the meditations referred to in the title, where Dolphy's flute, Bayard's piano, and Mingus solos on bass using his bow, they all seem to wind around each other melting into one another. They come in and out of the sauce, and you're lost in their reveries. Other solos are heard. They eventually go into another meditation with the three of them, segueing one solo into another, and it's seamless. You can barely keep track of which instrument is playing. It's a bit of hyperbole, but the effect is the sad, pensive mess we've gotten ourselves into. As I've said before, when people are asked which album to start with when it comes to Mingus, everyone says Mingus A'um or Black Saint and the Sinner Lady. To every person out there who says Black Saint, I've got a counter with any album from this group in 1964 that performs meditations. It's a suite, it's cohesive, it's got a story to it, it's virtually album length. What's the difference? The same can be said of Fables of Faubus. Orville Faubus is the governor of Arkansas who sent out the National Guard in 1957 to prevent racial integration of Little Rock Central High School. Faubus is one of an endless number of individuals who have stood up for past ideas, believing that things were better before someone had to go change them. Better for whom? Better for them, but not better for everybody. The song has an interesting history in its own right. Mingus has lyrics to the song that he trades off with drummer Danny Richmond. When he recorded it originally for the Mingus Ah Um album, Columbia Records wouldn't allow the recitation into the recording. They deemed it too controversial. A year later, Candid Records allowed it to be part of the track, but they had to change the title of the song to Original Faubus Fables for legal reasons. Please forgive my lack of ability here, Not going to sing it per se, but I'm going to try uttering the lines with a bit of rhythm. Oh Lord, to let them shoot us. Oh Lord, to let them stab us. Oh Lord, no more swastikas. Oh Lord, no more Ku Klux Klan. Name me someone who's ridiculous, Danny Governor Faubus. Why is he so sick and ridiculous? He won't permit integrated schools, and he's a fool. And later on, Name me a handful that's ridiculous, Danny Richman. Faubus, Rockefeller, Eisenhower. Why are they so sick and ridiculous? Two, four, six, eight. They brainwash and teach a hate. Sorry about that. It had to be done. So yeah, while bringing the joy and the musicianship with his band, Mingus is bringing America's original sin to stage every single night. Each version of the performance contains a number of musical quotes from the most quintessential American songs that everyone knows. My Country, Tis of Thee, Yankee Doodle, Oh Susanna, I Wish I was in Dixie. It's hard for me to keep track of them all, but they mix minstrel songs in with the patriotic songs, and the effect is not unlike Jimi Hendrix's version The Star Spangled Banner played at Woodstock five years later. This is America in all its glory and its ugliness. What does patriotism mean? What is it exactly that we all believe in? And what does that mean for our neighbor if they happen to have a belief or an experience in this country that is nothing like our own? Thomas Jefferson said of slavery, We have the wolf by the ears, and we can neither hold him nor safely let him go. Justice is in one scale and self-preservation in the other. We're still dealing with the fallout of our forefathers kicking the can down the road because the subject was too large for them to handle at the time north and south left and right truth and alternative facts the more that things change the more they stay the same as planned eric dolphy did stay over in europe after the tour had finished at the end of april he played with a number of pickup bands wherever he went there's an excellent recording with misha mengelberg in early june Unfortunately. While it's not literally correct, the title of that album is Last Date. Eric Dolphy died on June 29th from diabetic shock at the age of 36. He didn't even know he had diabetes. According to the liner notes in his Complete Prestige Recordings box set, Dolphy collapsed in his hotel room in Berlin, and when brought to the hospital, he was diagnosed as being in a diabetic coma. After being administered a shot of insulin, he lapsed into insulin shock and died. His passing elicited a number of different responses throughout the jazz world. His former bandmate, Ted Curson remembered, When Eric got sick on that date, and him being black and a jazz musician, they thought he was a junkie. Eric didn't use any drugs. He was diabetic. All they had to do was take a blood test, and they would have found out. So he died for nothing. They gave him detox stuff, and he died. And nobody ever went into that club in Berlin again. This has been the prevailing story surrounding his death that racist doctors thought him just another junkie who overdosed. In the end, nothing is substantiated. Theories aren't verified. What we know is he didn't know he had diabetes, and that his diet consisted of a large amount of honey and nuts in the last year of his life. So long Eric was supposed to mean, don't stay over there too long. Upon release, each record became a eulogy as much as a celebration. While this story breaks my heart to tell it, Naturally, it devastated Charles Mingus. His career took a turn for the worse shortly afterwards. He spent the next five years sunk in gloom. There's video of his eviction where he shoots a hole in the wall with a shotgun. At one point, even Jackie Byard quit playing with him when Mingus threatened him with violence, an axe specifically, while playing on stage. While he eventually landed on his feet and recorded the landmark LP Let My Children Hear Music in 1971, I don't think he ever got over Eric Dolphy's passing. He recorded throughout the 1970s but they aren't necessarily my favorite albums of his he began suffering from ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease in the mid 70s while he was invited in celebration to attend the White House in 1978 he died in early 1979 thought a lot about friendships in my life while making this episode. I think back to the pilot episode, how I wanted to get back to doing what's important. thought a lot about reconnecting. thought a lot about how many friends I have been estranged from throughout my life. What's wrong with me? I mean, maybe that's just adulthood and the forces that pull you in one direction or another. But I've been estranged from just about every one of them at one time or another. Sometimes it's been because of evolution. Sometimes it's proximity. Sometimes it's something that's been said. Lately, it's come down to the beliefs. I learned about love and admiration in every friendship I've ever had. From the neighborhood guys, to the grade school guys, to the guys I met in high school, and then on to the guys and gals I met in college. And even a few I've worked with. You have all taught me so much. People are places and places are times. Memories are the product of people and places and times. Got so much to tell all of you. Let's catch up. God bless you. All my love, Chris.
0: Charles Mingus, what an absolute legend. Uh, If you want to listen to more Mingus, legitimate non-bootlegged releases, of course, uh, Chris has you covered. Uh, If you're just trying one album, he suggests the Town Hall Concert album from 1964. If you're interested in all the albums he mentioned, try Cornell from 1964, Live from Bremen, uh, either the 1964 or 1975 release, Revenge, it's got an exclamation mark at the end of it, The Great Concert of Charles Mingus, Mingus in Europe, Volumes 1 and 2, and of course, The Black Saint and the Sinner Lady, and Mingus, 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 Mingus. That last one is a great album, but I feel like Chris put it on this list just because I hadn't said the name Mingus enough times in this list of albums. Uh, Give a few of those a listen and then get in touch with us and let us know what you think. The website is audiojudo.com forward slash AJDJ. On Facebook, we're at facebook.com slash audiojudo does jazz, Twitter at audiojudo jazz, or email us jazz at audiojudo.com. For a direct line to Chris with your questions or comments, email chris at audiojudo.com. Also, if you're interested in finding some non-jazz music to listen to, give our original podcast, Audio Judo, a try. You can find more information at audiojudo.com. Thank you all so much for listening. We'll talk to you next time.